Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, I'm your host, and here today on the 21st day of June in 2020, uh, we are several months now into this whole COVID thing and still sorting our way through how all that works and through so much else that's going on in American life right now um, that it's, it's a confusing time. It's a time when, when I think we have to take stock of a lot in our lives and we have to figure out who we are and what we're doing, where we're going, what's important to us being the main thing. You know, last week, I titled the, the podcast last week, What is God's Summum Bonum? Which means sort of the highest good. And for God, it's his name. You know, he won't entrust his name to people very easily um, because we can do so much to bring harm and disrepute to his name. So to call ourselves Christians is a high call. It's a, it's a high statement of, who we are, but we can bring dishonor to him. And that's the reason Gandhi would say things like, I like your Christ. I don't think much of your Christians. They're not very much like your Christ. And while I don't have to care a lot about Gandhi's <laughs> opinion because he, he's not a Christian, so he doesn't therefore come to grips and own and understand the truth of Jesus's identity as the incarnate son of God, unique in all of creation and all of time. Um, I do have to care, however, that he finds us not very much like the Jesus that he's drawn to, because I think that's an honest assessment too often of, of us. And so we who are supposed to be like Jesus, who are to be governed and led by his Holy Spirit, need to take that that critique seriously, I believe. And so um, when, when God's summum bonum is, is his glory, his name, because it's unique and it's holy. We don't have very clear understanding of what holy means. We don't have categories for that. It's not something that intrudes on our daily life very often or, or has a clear meaning for us because there's one holy. And so we don't have very much experience of the holy and the sacred. And so so when, it, when we look at what is God's summum bonum, what's his name? It's his son. It's wine. He gave us his son so that we would know who he is. We would know his heart. We would know his plans and intentions for us who would take his name and make it known to the world that we do it rightly. So it's God's summum bonum, his highest good is himself, but not in the same way that we too often make ourselves our own summum bonum. So, I want to talk more about that in light of the lessons that I'm working with this week. And those lessons are uh, Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21, uh, Romans 6, the first 11 verses, Matthew 10, 24 to 39, and the psalm is Psalm 86. It's the first 10 verses and then verses 16 and 17. So Jesus is calling his disciples to himself, he has sent them out, he has done some work, and then he undertakes to explain to them what it means to follow him. And it begins with the disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies, how much more will they malign those of his household? Well, that's not really encouraging. 
But it's, it's Jesus is preparing them for the reality that they will face and that we will face as well. For too long in America and other places, we have been uh, afforded um, respect and recognition. Um, we're not in that season any longer because Jesus goes on to say, have no fear of them for nothing is covered that won't be revealed or hidden that won't be known. And then he goes on to say, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're called before people and you're going to, you'll be given the words that you need to speak, but don't fear them. He says, don't fear those who have only power over the body. Fear the one who has power, not only over the body, but has the ability to destroy both soul and body in hell. And he goes on to say how valuable we are to the Father. And then says, everybody who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, don't think that I come to bring peace to this world. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a high bar. In one of the other Gospels, Jesus is recorded as having said, if you don't hate your mother or father, you're not worthy of me. It, it, it's a, it, He's commanding us so much here and asking so much of his disciples, particularly that early in his ministry prior to the cross. It seems, you know, familiar to us now when Jesus says things like, whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me, that means something to us because he took up a cross. But to the people there that day, that had to sound weird. I mean, like, make no sense at all kind of weird. Because nobody took up a cross. That was not the kind of image that we have for it today. It was one of the worst possible things you could actually say. Because it didn't mean what it means to us. It meant suffering and shame. It meant reproach. It re meant rebuke. And it meant judgment of God. It means that curse, because of the words from Leviticus, that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So for Jesus to say, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, is strange. And we don't have any record of any of the disciples asking him what in the world he meant by saying that. But, but at the time, it would have really caused some discussion among the disciples later. Like, what is he talking about? What in the world did that mean when he said that? And then he talks about not coming to bring peace, but division. And the enemies are going to be the people in your own household. And we've seen that happen. In that time, it happened. They did turn against one another. For those who followed Jesus had to be cast out of the synagogues. We saw it uh, in the story of the man born blind, for instance. Remember when after he's healed, they call his parents to say, what happened here? And because of the threat of anybody who confesses Jesus being thrown out of the synagogue, even the blind man's parents 
said, as for who healed him, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. So you see the beginning of that there, and then you begin to see it through the, the Acts and through uh, the early church history, but then it continues on. And, and it's not that hard, frankly, if you're my age, to see these things happening. You've seen them in the past. You saw it in Nazi Germany. They they talked children into betraying their parents, converse, private conversations, because they needed purity of thought. And they needed to make sure everybody was on the same page. And so children were taught to betray their parents. Same thing happened in the Soviet Union. And we're dangerously close in America today. Too often wrong think is being punished. Wrong think like in Georgia Orwell's book, 1984. But it's no less true of Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, where wrong think wasn't punished by death. Wrong think was punished by just giving you more soma and mellowing you out so that you no longer thought about those things in the same way or cared about those things in the same way. And so we, I see this sort of re-education in American thought where diversity of thought is no longer valued. But, but the church is coming increasingly under pressure to, to say, oh, well, we no, we don't actually believe that. And it, it's a problem. And so I think this is a timely word for us, but there's more to it than that, right? I mean, that, that's not a present threat in anybody's life. I just want you to be aware of that. That is not the focus of what I'm going to say. What what I had to say focuses on something entirely different, but but at the same time, it, it focuses on our summum bonum. And, and where I'm getting at that from is when Jesus says that, that if mother, if you love mother, father, son, or daughter more than him, then you're not worthy of him. I mean, you know, that's a big ask. It's not something that most people feel comfortable with. Um, certainly, I have not ever asked anybody for that same kind of loyalty. I also am not going to the cross to die for your sins so that you might have eternal life. That's already been done, and he's the only one who was capable. Of doing that because he's the only one who lived a sinless life. But so what I want to get at is this idea of of if you love anything in life more than you love him, then you're not worthy of him. Is that hyperbole or is it true? It's true. He meant it exactly the way he said it. He wasn't speaking hyperbolically. He he, he actually meant that they had to leave kith and kin in order to follow him. They had to leave the past behind. They had to leave everything behind. The perfect example of that is Paul. Paul left everything that was familiar to him, everything that had ever meant anything to him, had to go away because of his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he had to reject everything he believed as being incomplete and that Jesus was the surpassing good. And everything else then had to fall away to the extent that it made a claim on his life. He continued to try and speak to and win over his fellow Jews, but he was, in the most part, wildly unsuccessful. And so he went to the Gentiles and shared the gospel with them. And the measure of his full conversion, then you're going to see, if you read over into Galatians, 
and in Galatians, he talks about the episode that's in our lesson from Genesis 21 today, the, the episode of Hagar and Ishmael. When there's a lot of history. There's a lot that, that we have to go through. I'm not going to go through it all here. I'm going to cover some of it this week and some, some little briefer kinds of things to, to get you up to speed on how we get to this Hagar and Ishmael thing. And it's important to do it because next week we've got to deal with the binding of Isaac and the taking of him on, onto Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. So we've got to deal with that next week. And so what I want to do is cover some ground during the course of the week by talking about Genesis 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And then today we're going to talk about 21 and then 22 will be next week. But I want to cover some ground. We'll give you the background of um, Hagar and Ishmael and the covenant that God made with Abraham because it's important stuff. But I, and I'm, So I want to do some things to flesh out the story for you so that, that it makes a little better sense. I think we can do it today without going back and picking up all that ground now. But suffice to say, so Sarah has had a child, finally, named Isaac. Okay, so before that, we got to pick up a little bit of ground because what happened before that was is that, that she wasn't sure that she was to be the mother of the child that had been promised to Abraham. And so she said, here, take Hagar, my maidservant, and sleep with her. And well, she had a child, and that child's name is Ishmael. And so that's the only part of that I need to give you right now. So that, that Ishmael was going to be the heir of Abraham because he was literally his seed. And then God intervenes, and Sarah, at a quite advanced age, has a child, and that child's name is Isaac, which means laughter. And we'll cover a little bit of that this week. But it's important in the context today, too. So the, the child, Isaac, this is from the reading from 20, uh, Genesis 21. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day, <clears throat> the day the boy was weaned. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born Abraham, laughing. And there's something sinister about that laughter, that he's that one's laughing at Isaac, laughter. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for though I, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called the Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. 
and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Poparan, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, which is where she was from. So that's that reading. There's a lot in there. I don't think we can get all of it in in the next few minutes. But what I want to focus on here is this, this sense of what is truly important to you, and are you willing to give it up in order to have what God wants for you? It's incredibly noble and wonderful that Abraham was displeased about Sarah telling him to put away this child of the slave woman, she says. But Abraham, it says, was displeased on account of his son. He's not thinking of Ishmael as the child of the slave woman. He's thinking of Ishmael as his son. And she's telling him to put him away along with his mother. And it displeased him enough that God spoke to him and said, no, do what your wife tells you to do. Obey her voice is a better way to translate that. And do as she tells you. For Listen to the language here and where the repetition is. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I'll make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So God affirms these things and, but says he's your offspring, but through Isaac will your offspring be named. So he's making a distinction between the two sons. That happens in the next generation too. Remember with Jacob and Esau, it happens again. In following generations, God makes distinctions between sons of the patriarchs. All the way up through David, he makes distinctions between sons. And so here he's making a distinction between Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the slave woman from Egypt, and Isaac, the son of Sarah, the wife. And he tells Abraham to put away this other one and do exactly what Sarah suggests. And I believe it's because of Abraham's thoughts towards his son Ishmael, that there, there's a potential for great confusion and great problem later on that can be avoided by this happening now, because Abraham does have tender feelings towards Ishmael. He considers him his son. And so that can only be confusing as we go down the line, that everything has to be preserved through Isaac. And remember what's happened here is essentially God's made an accommodation to their sin. And we'll talk more about that this week when we talk about how this all happened to start with. I just think it's an incredible thing that if you want to look back and say, is the Bible relevant for today? Well, if you want to understand what's happening in the Middle East, which has been happening for thousands of years now, and what's happening in, in all over the world and what has happened all over the world in the past, you have to come to grips with the fact that it happened because Abraham and Sarah were frustrated over God's failure to complete his promise of giving a son, and they decided to take matters into their own hands, and Abraham slept with the slave woman and fathered Ishmael, who was the father, ultimately, of Muhammad. 
And so you get these two great tribes, these great nations, as God says, who are warring with one another. The, the, the children of Abraham, the, the division between the two of them and the enmity between the two of them explain much of world history and world affairs today. Amazing that that could happen. So think about that the next time anybody mentions something to you about the butterfly effect, how a butterfly flapping its wings in Africa can then cause all these other things that happen. If you want to understand the trouble in the world today, you're talking about a Bedouin couple in the middle of the desert who made a decision about how to have a child that explains much of the problem in the world several thousand years later. Be careful what you do. Enter into every decision with a lot of care and a lot of prayer. And so what happens here is, is that God says, no, listen to her and do exactly what she tells you to do. And so he does. He's faithful, even though he doesn't understand and he doesn't want to do this, he does. And so he rose early the next morning and he took bread and a skin of water. He gave it to Hagar and put it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Next week, pay attention to that same kind of language where Abraham gets up early in the morning, puts things on his shoulder, and then ultimately puts the wood on Isaac's shoulder. It's a very similar kind of thing that happens there. He he doesn't want to do that either, but he's being faithful. God's testing him again and again. This time it's because of sin. The sin uh, that of him sleeping with Hagar at Sarah's insistence without praying about it. He just did it because he, he knew God had made a promise. Well, now he wanted that promise to come true and he took upon himself to do it. It seemed a reasonable thing, but God didn't stop it from doing it in spite of all the trouble that this would cause. And so Hagar takes the child and the water's gone. And now she's convinced that they will die. And so she takes her child and it's, it, the, the language we see is she put the child under one of the bushes, but it, better translation would be she cast the child under the bushes. There's other places in Scripture where things are cast in this same way. And it's not violent, but it's not placing something either. It's, it's like putting something away, getting rid of it. And it's because not because she doesn't love her child, but it's because, simply because she does love her child that she casts him under the bushes. And then she cries aloud. Let me not look on the death of the child, and she lifted up her voice and wept. Who wouldn't, right? You're a mother and you know that your child is going to die. It's all cruel. It's a cruel world and there's a cruel God in charge of that world. And then suddenly, we're told, after she lifted up her voice and wept, God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God came and said, God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. She's not even making a prayer. She's just weeping. And God hears the voice of the boy, this child. Didn't hear her voice. Heard the boy's voice this time. 
And then God caused her to see a well. She didn't want to see the death of the child. Let me not look upon the death of the child. And when he restores this child to her, he didn't do anything miraculous. He pointed her to a well that was right there that she hadn't been able to see. Have you ever given up something and, and lost something so important to you that you were almost literally blind to your own surroundings and you couldn't see what was right in front of you? Well, that's Hagar. Abraham gave her a skin of water. God had a well provided for her. It sounds like some things that happened during the Exodus next time around in the next book of the Bible. We have to sometimes renounce the good for the sake of the best. We have to be willing to lay things down as God calls us to. Even as Jesus says, even kith and kin, even the most important relationships in our lives have to be second to him. If we want those relationships to be the best that they can be, frankly, then we need to make sure our relationship with him is the best it can be. We need to make sure that he is our summum bonum. He is the most important thing that we have, the most, the highest thing we can have. We can't let anything else compare to him or interfere with our relationship with him. And the big thing that causes that is our relationships with those around us, but then also fear, because Jesus says, don't fear these other things. And so we can't let fear get between us and him. We can't get the fear of man get between us and the, the proclamation of Jesus. And we can't let our relationships keep us away from him either. Those relationships that are closest to us. And then Paul gives us the rationale for that in that Romans 6 passage. Because he makes it really simple. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There was a class that I taught, actually, on something called Stephen Ministry, which is a one-on-one -on -one lay caring ministry. And the best example that I saw in the teaching material, and that was the difference between sympathy and empathy. And, and this is why it's important. What it showed was a stick drawing of a pit and someone in the pit and there were two other drawings after that. So someone's in the pit, they're stuck in the pit. There's a tree next to the pit. In one case, sympathy, the person gets lost in the problems of the other and is in the pit with them. And now they're both stuck. Empathy stands on the side of the pit, holds onto the tree and reaches a hand down into the pit in order to help the person. It's still their decision to do it. But I'm not getting stuck there with you because if I do, I'm no help to you. And so that's part of this issue of who's first in our lives, what's first in our lives. I, it, it, 
the best way I can care about you is actually to keep myself grounded and committed in Jesus Christ. Because he's the true answer to all your problems. I can't lose sight of my relationship with him in order to help you. Because in fact, if I help you without being connected with him primarily and first, then I'm really less help to you. And so the best thing that I can pursue in order to win my family to Christ or to lead my family to Christ or to lead them in discipleship is to ground and anchor myself in him and have him be my summum bonum. And to the extent that he is my summum bonum, then I am more able to be helpful and useful for you. If, if he is my highest good, then it's more likely that you'll see that as well after you get over the jealousy of that and that you'll seek after him too. But until he is the summum bonum of all Christians, until the world sees that he is our summum bonum, they won't seek after him at all because they don't think we're even seeking after him. In our baptismal service in the Anglican world, there's, there are six things that we ask of the person who comes to be baptized. See if you can spot the difference in two sets of three. The first thing, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? The answer is I renounce them. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? The answer is, I renounce them. That's the first three. The second is, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? I do. Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? I do. Do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? I do. That's the pattern for Christian life. And unfortunately, it doesn't begin and end with baptism. It begins every single day. And it begins almost every moment of every day. And the pattern is this. Do you renounce X, Y, Z? The reality is what's asking is, do you renounce everything except him? And then do you turn to him? Will you put your trust in him and will you follow him? So it begins with a series of renunciations in order that we might have nothing left except him, and that's the goal. Because we can seek after all those things and not have any of them. Or we can seek after him, seek after his righteousness, seek after heaven, and receive all those other things in the right way. Question today is simple. Are you willing to renounce the world's acclaim? Are you willing to renounce everything else that you hold dear in order to seek after him? And the question is, is do you find him ultimately of value and worth? Either he is the supreme thing in the universe, the prize, the treasure, or he's not. It is an all or nothing deal. Doesn't mean you don't get anything else in return, but is he enough? That's the challenge that he laid before his disciples that day. Do you love anything else, anybody else on earth more than you love me? Because if you do, you're not worthy of me. 
we have to find him as our highest good. Because he is. And because we want what he has to offer more than anything else that we could want. If we make that right choice and everything else finds its right place and we can enjoy it in the way that we were intended. Thanks for being with me today on Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green. If you've got any questions, prayer requests, concerns, or if you'd like to hear me talk about something specific, then please leave um, comments below or on the Facebook page that will be linked with this sermon. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding.